2 Corinthians 8, beginning verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your, your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Father, these are your holy scriptures. I pray, Father, that as we study them this morning, that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, that you would shape us into the image of Christ. Please make our our minds attentive to your words. Uh, Please uh, ready our hearts to accept and to trust your word. Lord, and and by uh, your grace, may we live this out in our lives for, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There may be no other time of the year that we think more of giving and generosity than the Christmas season. Through December, many of us read through the account of Jesus' birth. Maybe you're reading through the Gospels, or you're reading an Advent devotional with your family. As we read through the Gospel accounts or a devotional of the first Advent, we see God's greatest gift given to sinful man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And we can echo with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Having received such an amazing and wonderful gift from God, we we desire to be generous as our Father is generous. And the Christmas season is a wonderful time to be generous towards fellow believers, friends, family members, and neighbors. And the scriptures have much to say about generosity, or money in general, and generosity in particular. From the Old to New Testament, generosity is a mark of the people of God. You can see this in the, New, or in the Old Testament accounts of the preparations made for the building of the Tent of Meetings in Exodus 35, then in the preparation for the Temple in 1 Chronicles 29. There's much to say in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Or 14, um, a few verses down, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. And this pattern of generosity continues into the New Testament. We see it in the early New Testament church, Acts 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all, had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
Generosity is also a spiritual gift given to the body of Christ. We see this in Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. But generosity is also a Christian virtue to be pursued by all believers. Paul writing to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8 regarding a collection that's being taken up for the saints in Jerusalem writes, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, these other Christian virtues, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what does giving look like in the life of a believer? And I hope we can explore that in 2 Corinthians 8, looking at verses 1 through 5. And before we dive into the text of 2 Corinthians 8, I, want to, I would like to speak briefly on the occasion and context of the letter of 2 Corinthians. In Acts 18, we see the church at Corinth being established under Paul's ministry. You can turn with me there. We'll look at Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. Acts 18, beginning verse 1, it reads, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent, for now I will go to the Gentiles. And he left them and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. After ministering to the Corinthians for 18 months, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, causing him to depart Corinth. Problems quickly arose in the church in his absence, so Paul sent Timothy, his child and co-laborer in the faith, to deal with the issues that had risen and to deliver the letter that we have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. Following Timothy's visit, however, and unfortunately, those issues at hand grew worse. The church was divided over leaders, grievous sins were being tolerated, lawsuits were being brought against one another, Christian freedom was causing others in the faith to stumble, and the poor were being marginalized in the body. Paul then made another visit to Corinth, followed by the sending of another letter known as the painful or severe letter that was delivered by the hand of Titus. Now, unlike the visit with Timothy, Titus returned to Paul with a good report on the church. The letter of 2 Corinthians is written after this report from Titus, and this letter has been referred to as the thankful letter, written on Paul's third missionary journey. Much of the first seven chapters of the, of the 2 Corinthians speaks on the reconciliation that takes place between Paul and the Corinthian church. 
And Paul concludes chapter 7 with his rejoicing at the report of Titus. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 13. And besides our comfort, we, we rejoiced even more of the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted to him about you regarding anything, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be, true, to be the truth. His affections abound all the more towards you, and he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, the focus of the letter moves from the reconciliation that was taking place between Paul and the Corinthian church to a collection that is being taken up for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And this special collection was previously communicated by Paul to the Corinthian church in his first letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1, starting in verse 1, and reads, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those who you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul had directed the Corinthian believers to take up a weekly offering on the Lord's Day for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And this was something that was put in the works over a year before. We see that in 2 Corinthians 9.2. It says, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. So what was taking place in Jerusalem that required this special collection for them? John, John MacArthur points out four reasons why the church had such great need and required this collection. First, the church was largely populated by pilgrims. In Acts 2 and then in Acts 4, we see thousands coming to faith in Christ, many of whom were gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost from other countries. There were no churches planted in other nations at this time. The gospel had not yet gone out to the Gentiles. There would have been nothing to return to, especially for the poor among the new believers. So they stayed in Jerusalem and would have lived with Jewish believers who resided there. Second, the persecution of Jewish believers. John MacArthur states, When someone in an Orthodox Jewish family in Jerusalem comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are immediately rejected. They are alienated. They would become the victims of hostile hatred, social alienation, excommunication from the synagogue, complete rejection. They would lose their businesses, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their source of income, everything would disappear, they'd be disowned by their family, and so what you have had there was a whole lot of pilgrims with nothing and a whole lot of dispossessed Jews who had nothing either. Third reason there was such great need in Jerusalem is the occupation of Rome. The ter territories that the Roman Empire occupied became very poor from their extraction of the resource and resources and overtaxation. And fourth, there was a great famine. The whole world was experiencing a great famine, and we see this in Acts 11. Acts 11 in verse 27 says, Now in these days a prophet came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So the large number of pilgrims, the persecution of Jewish believers, the occupation of Rome, and the great famine all led to the severe poverty the believers in Jerusalem were experiencing. 
And this special collection for the believers in Jerusalem was more important than just meeting the physical need of the poor. This collection was communicating a spiritual reality that now exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. They were now in union with Christ. And because of their shared union with Christ, the Jews and Gentiles were no longer at odds with one another, but now had unity and fellowship with one another. Paul expresses this in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. For he said, for he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Romans 15, 27 through 28, he's explicit about this collection being um, proving a spiritual reality here. So not just me and the physical needs, but there's a spiritual reality. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do so, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what, they have, what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now with those introductory notes, we come to 2 Corinthians 8 with a focus on verses 1 through 5. Let me read that section one more time. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I want you to notice Paul's tone here. In verse 1, he refers to the, to the believers in Corinth as brothers. They are brothers in Christ with Paul. They belong to the same family, heirs of the same inheritance, partakers of the same promise with the apostle. And he's reminding them of the, those things in the word brother. And then look at verse 8. It says, I say this not as a command. The Apostle Paul does not desire the Corinthians to give towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem in response to an apostolic command, but he desires for their spirit-born desires to blossom by appealing to them. As the Apostle Paul begins to appeal to the Corinthians believers to be generous in their collection, he shows them by way of example. He wants the Corinthians to consider the generosity of the Macedonians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is a province encompassing much of northern Greece. It includes the important cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, which we see in Acts 16, 17, and 20. Paul founded these churches in his second missionary journey. And from the letters that we have for Philippian, to the Philippian church and first and second Thessalonians, we can tell that these churches were flourishing and growing churches. Paul points to the grace of God that was at work in the Macedonian church. There's a heavy emphasis on grace in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. The apostle attributes the generosity of the Macedonians to the grace of God. And we know the grace of God was at work in the Macedonians from Paul's other letters to the churches located in that region. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, 
Paul picks up and says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. But the joy of the Holy Spirit is that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Not only did the grace of God result in the Macedonians turning away from worthless idols to serving the true and living God, it was the grace of God that was at work in their lives, sanctifying them. They were people rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the, to the kingdom of Christ. And as people with new identities, they were given new spirit-born desires, even new desires to use their resources for the furtherance of God's kingdom, and that included providing for the needs of the poor. The Greek word for grace here is used 10 times uh, in chapters 8 and 9, and it's referring to God's unmerited loving kindness that's at work in the heart of the believer. And it's a grace that forms and grows Christian virtues. Christian virtues do not come from ourselves, but from God and his grace at work in our lives. And this is true in our generosity. It's a work of God's grace. Paul wants the Corinthians, Paul wants the Corinthians to consider the work of God's grace in the Macedonian's church. And the result of that grace in the Macedonians' generosity, a generosity rooted in the gospel. So for this morning, I want to briefly consider seven marks of gospel-motivated generosity that was evident in the Macedonians, and I pray that these will flourish in our church as well. The first mark that we see is gospel-motivated generosity is not dependent on circumstances. This is from verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What makes the example of the Macedonians commendable is that their circumstances did not hinder their giving. Verse 2 says they were in a severe test of, of affliction and experiencing extreme poverty. Severe test of affliction or a great test of affliction, as another translation reads. Paul piles up these descriptive terms to help us understand the condition of the Macedonians. Severe means great, much, and abundance. The word test here is a proving trial. The believers in Macedonia were undergoing a proving trial through the afflictions they were experiencing, one in which their true spiritual life and character were being revealed. Same word that Paul uses elsewhere in his writings, 2 Corinthians 2.9. For this I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. A proving trial. Under God's sovereign care and training hand, the genuineness of the Macedonians' faith was being proved. An affliction. The word gives the image of grapes being crushed in a wine press. The Macedonians were experiencing mental, physical, and spiritual pressures. The believers in Macedonia and the churches of Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea knew suffering firsthand. They were pressured from all sides. There was financial loss, physical violence, family conflict, an exclusion from a community they were once part of. And this was the daily life of the believers. And we see this kind of persecution that was taking place throughout Macedonia in the book of Acts. Acts 16, verses 22 through 24 record the persecution that Paul experienced in Philippi. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw in 
They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. After the departure from Philippi, Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, where the persecution continued in Acts 17. And then from Thessalonica, they go on to Berea, and we see that the persecution continues there as well. And certainly, this persecution did not cease upon Paul's departure from these cities. In Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians, he writes, 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to, to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Macedonians were under a severe test of affliction. Not only were they under a severe test of affliction, the Macedonian believers were extremely impoverished. Verse 2 says that for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. The financial or economic situation of the Macedonians was not different, much different than those of the believers in Jerusalem. Macedonia was under Roman control. As a Roman territory for over 200 years, it became impoverished as the Romans took over many of the economic drivers and industries. Heavy taxes were placed on the Macedonians like elsewhere in the empire. And the word extreme here in verse 2 is the word for extremely deep, the depths of the sea, or rock bottom. It describes a person that has been reduced to nothing but bare existence and used in the New Testament to describe the cripple, the blind, the lame, and beggars. It's the same word used by Jesus to describe the poor widow who only had two copper coins to her name in Mark 12, 41 through 42. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. The Macedonians, as Warren Wearsby comments, were brought to rock-bottom destruction. The situation of the Macedonians was dire, severe affliction and deep poverty, yet their generosity for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem did not depend on their circumstances. The second mark of gospel-motivated generosity is that it's done cheerfully. But in the midst of these circumstances, the severe test of affliction and deep poverty, we see something unexpected. Sandwiched between affliction and poverty is an abundance of joy. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. The word abundance here means superabundance, an exceeding measure, something above the ordinary. And this joy was anything but normal when we consider the circumstances that the Macedonians were experiencing. Paul has taken away any notion that this is the result of some human effort. This kind of giving, gospel-motivated generosity, flows from the work of God's grace in the believer's life. In, in spite of a devastated economy from Roman rule and taxes, in spite of losing their jobs and being dispossessed by their families, these believers had an abundance of joy as they gave towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. They counted it joy to give liberally towards the needs of those saints. 
how often we allow light momentary afflictions nowhere near as severe and pressing as what we see in Macedonia to rob us of our joy that we have in the Lord. But for the Macedonians, there was an abundance of joy. How could the Macedonians be cheerful to have an abundance of joy in these kind of circumstances? How can we be cheerful in all the difficult seasons that God brings into our lives? If you would, in 2 Corinthians 8, just peek over at verse 9 there, where we concluded our our reading starting this time. Verse 9 reads, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christians have been made rich in Christ through his poverty. Christ, the Son of God, very God of very God, became poor by his life, suffering, and death, so that we who are spiritually bankrupt might become rich in him. This is what Paul speaks of. In, Paul speaks of Christ's poverty in Philippians 2. Again, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the church has confessed this through the ages. The Nicene Creed, I love reading this. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Those are the riches of Christ. And now we'll see his poverty and our riches as the creed continues. Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Believers are made rich through the work of Jesus Christ, the God-man. The Macedonians, the Corinthians, and us here today have been given every spiritual blessing laid out for us that we find in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been truly made, been made rich in Christ and have been given eternal riches that can never been, be destroyed. So back to verse, verse 2 of chapter 8. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Warren Wearsby comments, no computer could analyze this amazing formula. Great affliction and deep poverty plus grace equals abundant, abundant joy and abounding liberality. Like a river that breaches its bank or a cup filled past its brim is the picture of God's grace at work in the Macedonians. God's grace so filled their lives that they abounded in their giving as they walked daily through trials and tribulations. The word wealth in verse 2 is not referring course, their earthly riches or possessions, which we have seen considering their circumstances, but speaks of the attitude of their heart. They were rich with a generous attitude. Generosity communicates the idea of single-mindedness. The Macedonians were not torn between their own needs and the needs of others. Their own needs were set aside to meet the needs of others. They had the mind of Christ that, again, we see in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. The Macedonians were preoccupied 
with the needs of others. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says, For what makes us more closed-handed than we ought to be is when we look too carefully and too far forward in contemplating the dangers that may occur, when we are excessively cautious and careful, when we calculate too narrowly what, will be, what we will require during our whole life or in find how much we'll lose when the smallest portion is taken away, the man that depends upon the blessing of the Lord has his mind set free from these trammels and has at the same time his hand open for beneficence. Let us draw now an argument from the lesser to the greater. Slender means, nay, poverty did not prevent the Macedonians from doing good in their, to their brethren. What excuse then will the Corinthians have if they keep back while opulent and affluent in comparison of them? So Paul desires the Corinthian church and by extension Calvary Baptist Church to consider the example of the Macedonians' generosity. And this kind of generosity, gospel-motivated generosity, is not dependent upon circumstances. It's to be done cheerfully, having been made rich in Christ. The third mark is gospel-motivated generosity is proportionate. This comes from verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They gave according to their means. That word means, the word mean means, means an ability, power, or capability. So each person gave according to what they had, to the amount that God allowed them to prosper. Paul does not provide us with a set figure or percentage to give, but provides us with a wonderful principle. When the Apostle Paul first communicated the collection to the Corinthians in his first letter, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, he made the same point. It says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and store it up as he may prosper. And a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul circles back to this thought, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Also, the preacher of Hebrews says something very similar. Do not neg neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Share what you have. We cannot give what we do not have, but we are to give according to what we have to the level which God has allowed us to prosper. Matthew Henry Comet says, God expects that our beneficence to others should hold some proportion to his bounty to us. All we have is from God. The more he gives, the more he enables us to give, and the more he expects, he expects we should give. That we should give more than, than others who, ha who are less able. That we should give more than ourselves when we were less able. So gospel-motivated generosity is not dependent on circumstances. It's to be done cheerfully. It's to be proportionate to what we have. The fourth mark is gospel-motivated generosity is sacrificial. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 3 tells us that the Macedonians gave above their means or beyond their means. They gave in a way that was sacrificial. Even though they were at rock-bottom destruction and experiencing afflictions on every side, they gave in such a way that made their poverty deeper and their situation even harder. The Macedonians were willing to adjust their standard of living, and it was already a very low standard of living, to meet the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. They were willing to give even at a great cost to themselves. Calvin comments, The Macedonians, making no account of themselves and almost losing sight in themselves, concern themselves rather as to providing for others. 
This is what true love is. Willing to give that which is of great value for the good of another, even at great cost to ourselves. It is the heart of God and it is at the heart of the gospel message. Listen to the words of 1 John 4, 7-12. through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And for whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that, he, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Having been born of God, we are to love as God has loved us. And this love was demonstrated through the sacrificial giving of the Macedonians towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul desires the Corinthian church to pattern the same kind of giving to prove their love. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8, Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, and true love is always sacrificial. And then again, Paul circles back in verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of the boasting about you to these men. So the Macedonians were to prove their love by their sacrificial giving for the, to the, Macedon- for the, Jeru- the saints in Jerusalem. So gospel-motivated generosity is not dependent on circumstances. It's to be done with joy or cheerfulness. It's to be proportionate to what, to what one has and it's to be sacrificial. The fifth mark is gospel-motivated generosity is always voluntary. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Macedonians gave towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem of their own accord. It was completely voluntary, a free choice. No coercion, no manipulation, no guilt. Paul did not have to pressure the Macedonians to give. And it's probably reasonable that he did the exact opposite in trying to persuade them not to give so abundantly, and which we will talk about shortly. Just as God's grace was at work in their lives, caused them to have just God's grace at work in their lives caused them to have concern and compassion for their brothers and sisters who were suffering. Grace compelled them to give of their own accord. Often we can turn on the TV or radio, or maybe receive a, an email from a Christian ministry that uses language of manipulation coercion, or guilt tripping. How easy it is for us in our sinfulness to want to use these tactics to spur on giving. But we must flee from these things and allow God's grace to work in the life of each believer by his spirit and word and to turn, turn him or her into a free-willed, sacrificial giver. And we see this kind of voluntary, willing generosity in the Old Testament. If you would, turn with me to First Chronicles 29. Let me read through some verses here. First Chronicles 29. So this is a preparing for the building of the temple. Uh, the reign's going to, the, the kingship's going to be transferred to King Solomon, uh, but uh, David is making preparations. He speaks to the assembly that's gathered, speaks on how he has provided his, his resources, his treasures for the building of the temple, and then he calls for a response for the people that were in his hearing. Picking up in verse 5, it says, 
Now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave towards the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to, to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now jump down to verse 14, and we see David's prayer following the generosity of the people. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have, have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as well as our, all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like the shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for, your, for building you a temple, for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the hearts and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. The willingness to give like the Macedonians towards the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, or as the Old Testament believers gave towards the building of the temple, comes from a recognition that all we have comes from the hand of God. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. So again, there's no coercion, gospel-motivated generosity, no manipulation, no guilt, but of one's accord, done willingly and voluntarily. The sixth mark of gospel-motivated generosity, that it seizes the opportunity to give. Is there a Kleenex around by chance? The sixth mark. And this comes from verse 3. So gospel-motivated generosity seizes the opportunity to give. For they gave according to their... I'm picking up in verse 3 and this verse 4. For they gave according to their means as I can testify. Thank you. And beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Macedonian believers begged, asked, beseeched the Apostle Paul to participate in the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Those who are at rock-bottom destruction, those who were reduced to a state of beggary, begged for the opportunity to give what they had to bless the Jerusalem believers. The Macedonians begged earnestly. They used words of appeal to humbly request that they would be allowed to participate in this collection. It is probable that the Apostle Paul did not request the churches in Macedonia to give to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem because of their extreme poverty. However, when the Macedonians heard of the zeal of the Corinthians a year ago about the collection, they were stirred up. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning verse 1. Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. They, the Macedonians, were so stirred by the zeal of the Corinthians that they begged the apostle to participate in this act of grace. The Macedonians did not want to miss out on an opportunity to be used by God to provide relief and blessing to fellow believers. They were watchful of the needs of others. 
And when they heard of the need in Jerusalem, they jumped at the opportunity to give. Are you watchful over the needs in our body? Or even the needs of others outside of our congregation? And when you see those needs, do you seize the opportunity to give? 1 John 3, verses 16 and 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Christ, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his, hearts against, his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Macedonians saw the needs of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They did not close their hearts against them, but opened their hearts and their hands to help supply their needs and relieve some of their sufferings. They loved in deed and truth. May we follow that pattern of giving. And finally, the seventh mark of gospel-motivated generosity it is an act of worship. And this comes from verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The giving of the Macedonians far exceeded the expectation of the apostle and those charged with carrying out the collection. It was not as they expected. Their generosity was a response to God's grace at work in their lives. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Having been redeemed by Jesus Christ, they belonged to him, and their whole lives were to be lived as a pleasing sacrifice to God. And I think of Paul's words in Romans 12, beginning verse 1, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Having given themselves fully to the Lord, they easily, eagerly, voluntarily open their hands generously in the participation of this collection. And this is an act of worship that is accepted by the Father. Listen to how Paul describes the Philippians' financial support of his own ministry as an act of worship. Yet it was kind of you, in this Philippians 4, uh, beginning in verse 14, and yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians know yourselves that in the beginning of the gospel, beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, sent me help for my need once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Hebrews 13 speaks about sharing with others. And this is why I read 13.6. Do not neglect to do good and to share with others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the generous and sacrificial giving of the Macedonians was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So gospel-motivated generosity is not dependent upon circumstances. It is to be done with joy. Is to be proportionate to what one has, to be sacrificial, to be voluntary, to seize opportunities to give, is to seize those opportunities, right, and act upon it. And it is an act of worship to God. In closing, I'd like to read a section of our Confession of Faith from uh, chapter 27 on the communion of saints. It says, All saints are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith. Although, although this does not make them one person with him, they have fellowship in his graces, suffering, death, resurrection, and glory. 
Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion with each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to carry out these duties both public and private in an orderly way to promote their mutual good, both in the inner and outer aspects of their lives. Saints by profession are obligated to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. And this is where it's going to tie in. And they are to aid each other in material, material things according to their various abilities and needs. They should especially exercise communion in the relationships they have in their families and churches. Yet the rule of the gospel also directs them as God provides opportunity to extend their sharing to the whole household of faith, to all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. Listen again to the Apostles' encouragement in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. May we pursue this kind of generosity in our lives, just as you have excelled and progressed in doctrine, in Christian maturity and holiness, in steadfastness and suffering, in hospitality and so many of the one another's of Scripture, by God's grace, may we also excel in our generosity. Let us pray. Father, you have truly made us rich in Jesus Christ. We who are once poor, spiritually bankrupt, have been lifted from the mire and mud of our sin and have received every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We thank you for Christ's poverty, his birth, his life, his suffering, his death that has made us rich. Having been made rich in Christ, may we now live in this reality and would it radically shape us into a people who are generous with the earthly riches that we have. Forgive us for often being tight-handed. Forgive us for not seeing needs and not meeting those needs. Teach us to love others as you have loved us. And may your grace in our lives enable us to give generously despite of our circumstances. May it be done cheerfully. May we give in proportion to what you have blessed us with and may it be sacrificial. I pray that our generous giving would be an overflow of our devotion to you and an act of worship that is acceptable to you. We pray these things through our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.